Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Glad you're with us for the Thursday edition. Grab a stool. We've got good, bad, and crazy martinis, and we're brought to you today by Express VPN. And Jim, we've got two of the most liberal cities in the country at war with their own local teachers' unions now. And it's weird to find yourself on the side of people like Lori Lightfoot and London Breed, the mayors of Chicago and San Francisco, respectively. But that's kind of where we are right now. Uh, First of all, hats off to Hot Air for compiling the San Francisco story. Uh, First from MSN, City Attorney Dennis Herrera, with the blessing of Mayor London Breed, plans to sue the San Francisco Board of Education and the San Francisco Unified School District for violating a state law compelling districts to adopt a clear plan during the COVID-19 pandemic, describing actions they, quote, will take to offer classroom-based instruction whenever possible. The city attorney will file a motion February 11th asking the San Francisco Superior Court to issue an emergency order compelling the district to formulate a reopening plan with the aim, he said in an interview, of getting the kids back in school as quickly as possible. He says it's a shame it has come to this. The Board of Education and the school district have had more than 10 months to roll out a concrete plan to get these kids back in school. So far, they have earned an F. Having a plan to make a plan doesn't cut it. Uh, Chicago just today... Lori Lightfoot saying that there's still an impasse. She says she's run out of patience with the Chicago Teachers Union in trying to reach an agreement to reopen schools and that she wants a deal today. She says that after 80-plus meetings between the two sides, we are out of runway. There was a plan a couple of weeks ago to get kids back in school. Uh, The union balked. Teachers said they wouldn't show up, so they had to pull back on those plans. So, Jim... Politicians we don't normally agree with are doing the right thing here. Uh, Makes you wonder why, after all this time, they're suddenly doing the right thing. Perhaps they're seeing that it's a political disadvantage for them in the long run to keep staying joined at the hip with these unions. But uh, what do you make of these lefties fighting lefties? And we actually have some lefties on the right side for once. Well, I think the the single clearest aspect, Greg, is that it's February. This is now month 11 of the pandemic, if you consider mid-March to be the point where it really took effect in the United States, and that's when most of the school closures began. So we're coming up on a year. Now, no one expected public schools to have a perfect plan if they suddenly couldn't use buildings. And so everybody was, was more or less understanding about the problems of setting up online learning and, and uh, all of the efforts in the spring. They had all summer to plan and fall rolled around. They still didn't have it ready. A couple, little bit of talk of, okay, maybe at the end of the year, but then the cases started going up. Now we are not just, you know, we're, we're now more than a month into 2021. We're coming up on that one year anniversary. And I think public patience is just about exhausted. Now, a couple things came to my mind as I was reading these articles. The first is, um, it's very rare on this podcast that you'll hear go Chicago, or at least from my end, at least in this context. <laughs> Greg might root for Chicago. Uh, this might say that more out loud. Secondly, London Breed. I think if a book, if, if I submitted a book in which that was the name of a mayor of a city, uh, the, the editor would cross that out and say, no, come on, that's not very realistic. Come on, give, give him a real name. <laughs> the third thing, though, I, you know, I've been to Chicago a couple of times. Always enjoyed my visits. And one of the things that you notice about Chicago, it's always had legendary corruption, right? And the stories of the aldermen taking bribes and 
Dan Rostenkowski and, and all that stuff. It's always had kind of this, you know, going back to Capone or even earlier, this notorious reputation. But it also had this nickname as the city that works. And you could kind of see most of the Chicago politicians that have come out of that. I would say Democratic politicians, but that's almost redundant when it comes to Chicago. You can get away with a lot. You can get away with a lot of bribery, a lot of kickbacks, a lot of favoritism and city contract. There, were, there was all kinds of ways in which Chicago city government was either corrupt or didn't live up to the ideals and standards that we like to see in an American city government. But by and large, it worked, right? The Chicago Board of Trade, the, the stockyards, the rail yards, all the things that make Chicago what it is worked. And that was kind of the, the, the dirty little secret was you could get away with a certain amount of corruption if your city is working well correctly. And I think for a long time, you know, coming from the state of New Jersey, there was this sense of you could get away with notorious corruption in New Jersey as long as your city or your state worked. And I, tar- I put it sometime around the time of Bob Torricelli. People will live with high taxes and they'll live with corruption, but they won't live with both. If you have both, then people feel like, why am I living here? Why am I paying all these taxes if there's constantly uh, being mismanaged and misused by this corrupt government? The teachers' unions have now reached a point where the city that works isn't working. In San Francisco, it's not like there are a lot of you know crazed right-wing libertarians uh, running San Francisco. Like if you're it's a teachers' union in San Francisco, the people running that city are about as friendly and easygoing as they're possibly going to make. So if even they are saying, no, you guys got to get back in the classroom, that's when you know you have, you know, it's going beyond the breaking point. This is the straw that breaks the camel's back. Even good progressive liberals are looking at the teachers unions and saying, you're being unreasonable. We need to get our kids back in classrooms. You're, you, you, this, this online learning is failing the kids who need the most help. Get back in there. I can't wait. You know, I, I would say past the popcorn, but like this is re- like we're finally seeing the most left of the liberals rec- like recognizing that uh, the teachers unions are not inherently good. They are not putting the kids interested at hand and they're not even reasonable. Right. No San Francisco politician goes to work wanting to fight with the teachers union. And I'd like this, you know, like they'll, they'll recognize it in these circumstances. I just wish this very hard lesson everyone is having could be you know, one could permeate the minds from coast to coast, not just in these particular big cities, to recognize that teachers' unions are one, they're, you know, they, they are no more inherently noble than any other group of people. And their positions are no more inherently reasonable and with the best interests of education than any other public sector union. And I can hear folks on the left pointing out, hey, everything you're saying about teachers' unions, a lot of it applies to police unions too. Wow. Public sector unions are not great forces for accountability. They are not great forces for making sure that the general public at large is served well. Hopefully this lesson is not just heeded and less, but it's also remembered in Chicago and San Francisco. But Greg, I won't hold my breath. No, not at all. And uh, you just wonder if maybe Gavin Newsom's the canary in the coal mine. I mean, he's probably not going to be removed from office, but there are more stories out today in Politico and elsewhere talking about how Democrats are starting to take this more seriously, especially if they have enough signatures to make this happen, which looks like they will. So... I wonder if some of these local politicians are seeing that, uh, you know, you got a lot of lefty voters in these cities. They'll forgive just about anything. But if you ruin an entire year for their kids, they're going to run out of patience on you. They might elect other Democrats, but they're not going to want you back. All right. Let's talk about uh, ExpressVPN. We've talked a lot about uh, social media and the regular media deciding who can say what, what's appropriate, what's not. 
But guess what? There's still free speech in this country, last we checked, officially. Uh, and you don't want to give too much power to these big tech companies when it comes to what you can say and your own personal data. Look, the lines have been drawn. Big tech has made it clear which side they're on. But you can take a stand and have some ammunition on your side. You can protect your personal data from big tech with the VPN you can trust for online protection. That's ExpressVPN. You see, every device, whether you're on your phone or your laptop or your TV, has a unique string of numbers called an IP address. And when you search for stuff, or you watch videos, or even if you just click on a link, big tech companies can use that IP to track all of your activity and tie it back to you. So when you use ExpressVPN, your connection gets rerouted through their secure encrypted servers. So these companies can't see your IP address at all. Your internet activity becomes anonymized and your network data is encrypted. And the best part is you don't need to be tech savvy at all to use ExpressVPN. You just download the app on your phone or computer, tap one button, and you are protected. So stop, not the podcast, just stop handing over your data to big tech companies because their aim is to censor you and in some cases even to eavesdrop and spy on you. So defend your rights and protect your internet activity with the VPN you can use every day and you can trust every day. Visit expressvpn.com slash martini. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash martini and you'll get three extra months free at that url go to expressvpn.com slash martini right now to learn more all right jim the republican party is still trying to figure out exactly where it's going to be following the trump administration uh and no two names up on capitol hill perhaps crystallized that divide more than liz cheney and marjorie taylor green there was an effort to remove liz cheney as GOP House Conference Chair after she voted to impeach President Trump. Uh, there was a vote last night and she survived quite easily. I think it was 121 to keep her and 65 against. And Marjorie Taylor Greene apparently denounced QAnon at the uh, GOP meeting last night. But that will probably not stop her from losing all of her committee assignments on a House vote later today. But uh, Kevin McCarthy, uh, the House Republican leader, trying to present a unified front. Here's what he said following the meeting about Marjorie Taylor Greene and some of the very controversial things she has said uh, in recent days and even uh, well before she got elected to Congress. She came inside our conference and announced them as well. She said she was wrong. She has reached out in other ways and forms. And nothing that she said has been based upon since she's been a member of Congress. And the voters, the voters, no, the voters decided she could come and serve. And so the, the leader obviously trying to stand up for all of his members. And look, Jim, there is a divide in the Republican Party. I think you and I would agree that most of the things that have gotten a lot of attention that have been said by Marjorie Taylor Greene, whether since she got sworn in or before, uh, have been more than a little troubling. Uh, any sort of dabbling with QAnon is dangerous. Uh, she's uh, done other things, many other things over time to, uh, to raise our eyebrows and make us wince and so forth. I don't know that being a crazy person means you lose your committee assignments. Uh, you also have to notice that uh, when the Democrats elect far left people, they're the future of the party. They're not kooks. The Omars, the Ocasio-Cortezes, the Talibs, 
they're the fresh face who's really going to uh, move things in the right direction. Uh, and then on the Republican side, uh, the people who are kind of seen as kooks are are then uh, branded as the face of the party. And then every other Republican, of course, is called on to denounce them. So this issue is not going away, whether manufactured by the media or reality inside the conference. So where do we stand now? Well, Greg, I'm going to go a little further than you and declare that if there was indeed a Jewish space laser, <laughs> as Marjorie Taylor Greene had suggested in a Facebook post back in 2018, if the Jewish space laser existed, I would support using it to vaporize Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, but since that does not exist, and that's not an option, I, I find my, I was frustrated when I first saw last night that there were apparently 61 House Republicans who think that the one person who should be punished in the aftermath of January 6th is Liz Cheney and not anybody else, certainly not the president, not anybody who spoke at the rally. No, no, no. The real problem is Liz Cheney. I think Liz Cheney is not what's wrong with the Republican Party. I think she's a big part of what's right with the Republican Party. But she's going to stay in power, and I'm glad to see that. And the more I think about it, I'm very skeptical that Marjorie Taylor Greene, that it was a sincere apology, that she really means it, that she recognizes the damage she's done to the party and the damage she's going to do to all the causes she claims to believe in. But you know what? Marjorie Taylor Greene, prove me wrong. You, you've been given a second chance. You people, the, the, the Republican caucus has said, we are not going to judge you for the things you've said before you were elected from Congress. You say you've learned your lessons. Okay, prove it. I, I, I want to be proved wrong. I want a year from now for us, when we look at Marjorie Taylor Greene to say, boy, what was all that about? She, she really has buckled down. She really has become a hardworking member of Congress focused on real world problems, real life solutions and not rambling about Jewish space lasers and QAnon and uh, crazy conspiracy theories and uh, that mass shootings are faked and, and things like that. Um, if she if she really does it, great. I mean, you know, it's no fun being a back a freshman backbencher in the House of Representatives. It requires hard work. It requires not. And the entire media will will constantly be putting microphones and, and such on her face and cameras, hoping she'll say something crazy. Right? The opportunities to screw up over the next year are going to be copious. If she, you know, she has to resist the temptation. She has to say, when asked about these crazy conspiracies, you know, I don't know anything about that. And I just don't have anything to say on it. That, you know, that, that's all you really need to say. Prove us wrong. Become a, a Rob Portman-esque, hardworking workhorse, not a show horse. And I will be very happy a year from now to say, you know what? Marjorie Taylor Greene learned from her mistakes she recognizes the responsibilities of her office, and she's a terrific addition. I don't think we're going to be there, but I'd love to be in that situation, and that's a, still a possibility. But the first time she goes off again and says that, oh, now the Methodists have a, a space laser of some kind <laughs> or some other crazy one. My colleague Charlie Cook observed, you never hear about an Episcopalian space laser. Apparently that one would do, or, or you know, Episcopalian weather control or things like that. It's always the Jews. You know, I, I guess Episcopalian weather control would just be a light drizzle all the time. <laughs> Sorry, Episcopalian listeners. You know I love you. But anyway, she's got two strikes against her as far as I'm concerned. If she can keep uh, her walk the straight and narrow path from here on, terrific, great. Maybe this will all be behind us. But I wouldn't bet that way, Greg. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, she has crazy views on the things you mentioned, Jewish space lasers, false flag shootings, and, and things like that. QAnon, I mean, uh, it, it makes us cringe. 
Um, but, you know, in the House of Representatives, you're more likely to get somebody way out on the fringe because of the uh, lopsided political divide in most districts. And so sometimes the person furthest to one side ends up being the person who ends up with the nomination and therefore the election. So so how do you deal with that real quickly? Uh, I mean, you're going to get them. Nancy Pelosi hates the squad. The media love them. Pelosi hates them. Back before you even had Trump, uh, the media and the Democrats would find some member of the Freedom Caucus, sometimes Republican leadership, whether Boehner or Ryan, would also be frustrated with them, and that person uh, would be the villain of the day. Uh, but we are on a completely different level here with Marjorie Taylor Greene with some of the stuff uh, that she is putting out there, like you've already described. It's crazy stuff. Uh, so how do you navigate that? My fear is that there are two groups of people who love to see Marjorie Taylor Greene saying controversial things. The first is about three, I guess. Okay. The, the, depends on whether you count the media and Democrats as one group <laughs> or two. Um, but both of them love to, you know, love the, the you know, like this is, oh, you know, they, we've had five and a half years in which a dominant theme of the daily political news is you won't believe what Donald Trump just said. Donald Trump left office two weeks ago, a little more than two weeks ago, and he, but he's been amazingly quiet since he left the presidency uh, down in Mar-a-Lago. He's, he's not on Twitter anymore, so he's not generating that sense of, oh, my goodness, right? So the media needs something to fill that vacuum. Enter Marjorie Taylor Greene, who I feared heading into last night was perfectly happy to play that role. That this to her was the idea of being an effective uh, member of Congress. Other couple, other new members of Congress have made similar comments, kind of seeing themselves as like their job is to influence the media, not to pass legislation. I would urge these people to go back to the Constitution and read what the actual role of Congress is. Um, and so here, like I said, there's, there's going to be these constant temptations for her to, to step into this because my my suspicion was that she liked it. She liked being the same. She's arguably one of the most famous members of the House of Representatives and she's been there for about two weeks, probably about a month. They, they get sworn in January 3rd, right? You're not hearing about Nancy Mace as much. You're not hearing about uh, uh, Michelle Steele or any of the, you know, uh, Young Kim. Got a whole bunch of actual serious, you know, legislation-minded House Republicans out there, but they're not getting the attention because they're not talking about Jewish space lasers. So... You know, the, the media will love to spotlight uh, crazy members of Congress who can make other Republicans look bad. Some of that is the, the media's fault, but some of this is the fault of those Republicans who are all too happy to play that role because they think it makes them a bigger deal. And in some ways, I think it does. I think saturation coverage of Marjorie Taylor Greene does not rebuke her or minimize her power, as I'm sure the CNNs and MSNBCs of the world would insist. I think saturation coverage empowers her because it makes her a bigger deal because you're, not, you're paying attention to her and not the actual people who are focused on real solutions in this life. Big tech is censoring conservative speech and Democrats will be controlling the White House and Congress. Hi, I'm Sarah Carter. Join me on The Sarah Carter Show and we will dig deep into the big issues together. Look, as an investigative reporter, I'll ask the questions no one else is asking. Share personal stories covering wars, the border, and the D.C. swamp. And bring on guests who know what's really going on. Subscribe to The Sarah Carter Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's move on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And for that, we head to the Biden White House. This is NBC News. The Biden White House is considering sending masks directly to American households, according to three people familiar with the discussions and action the Trump administration explored. But scrap the COVID-19 response team is evaluating the logistics of mailing out millions of face coverings 
but no decision has been made and the proposal hasn't yet reached President Biden. The idea has been raised in several meetings among Biden's top health experts in recent days. It's unclear whether the masks would go out to the public, how many would be included per residence, and whether they would be disposable or made of cloth. Uh, They say there's a range of options. The Trump White House uh, initially uh, considered a plan such as this, but decided to send them to nonprofit organizations and state agencies for distribution. So, uh, Jim, I think you and I are pretty much seeing this issue the same here. Uh, Those who don't want to wear masks, it's not a matter of not being able to get one. It's that they don't want to wear one. So just because they get a few more in the mail doesn't mean that anything's going to change. And it's really expensive. Look, this is a... This is a dumb idea. <laughs> the, the, you know, Biden administration, you're, you're being dumb. And I think I know why you're being dumb. Uh, you know, for, for much of the last uh, election year, you know, the, the response, during the pandemic, Biden's, I have a plan. Donald Trump doesn't have a plan and all this stuff. And then if you, if you actually looked at the Biden plan, most of what it called for were things the Trump administration was already doing. In a couple of cases, they wanted more money here and there. But like it was like, you know ensure that the National Institute of Health is swiftly accelerating the development of vaccines. Yeah, yeah, they did that pretty darn fast. Operation Warp Speed did that real well. Thanks thanks for that tip, Biden. That's, that's the real groundbreaker there. Um, so the Biden administration, having touted themselves, having all these much more terrific ideas, now need to show that they have these terrific ideas. And surprise, surprise, their ideas aren't really that big or different. I don't believe that the problem, that if you see somebody not wearing a mask, I don't think the problem is that they couldn't find a mask or that they couldn't afford a mask. And the corner post I wrote earlier today, I went through all the different places that are, are well, a whole bunch of places are distributing free masks. I think at my, my gym, they, they have them for free. I have one when I'm walking in. But like you, you listeners to this podcast can probably think of two or three places they've seen that are giving away the, dis- the quick, easy, disposable ones. If you haven't seen that, I'm also willing to bet the last time you went to the grocery store, you probably saw at least one dingy mask lying on the ground that someone was too lazy to properly dispose of. It's it's uh, at least I feel like I see at least one every trip out of the house. So the problem we have plenty of masks. Masks are everywhere. The issue is not that oh we need the federal government to do this. Lots of people can get masks. The people who don't are either it doesn't work. I'm angry about it. Vaccines are dangerous, but the virus isn't, you know, viewpoints that I find uh, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. But I do observe, I enjoyed writing a corner post about this one as well. A couple of weeks ago in Trader Joe's, somebody bumped into me, uh, not managing the, you know, try to stay six feet away from people. He was wearing two masks, Greg, both on his chin. So the funny thing, you realize he's not an anti-masker. In fact, he's concerned enough to, to put both of them on. But neither one of them was covering his nose, and it really wasn't all that, you know, covering up his mouth all that well. And so I just want to observe that I just want to tell every health expert and every government official in the whole wide, you know, in the United States, some people just aren't going to be reached by public service announcements. There, there are some people you're just not going to be able to save. And that's, uh, you might even argue it's Darwinism in action, except he's bumping into me. Um, but so here's the, I, this to me, the idea of, oh, let's have the federal government send everybody three masks. No, no I think... This is a solution in search of a problem. Americans are not having a hard time finding masks. What they're having a hard time finding is appointments to get a vaccination. And that's the real problem. And the Biden administration has, you know, they're they're talking about rolling out CVS and they think they can get more doses per vial and all that kind of stuff. But uh, this this sounds like somebody in in the halls of the White House yelling, do something. And this qualifies as something even though it strikes me as a waste of money, waste of time, and addressing a problem that isn't really a problem. 
What's next, Jim? You think we might get personalized hand sanitizer like you get ketchup at a fast food restaurant? Or uh, what's, what's the government going to be sending out to us next because we can't possibly find it for ourselves if we really want it? Well, the other thing is, you know, has anyone ever gotten their, their tax refund on time? <laughs> that would be good. I mean, like, if the government is there, you realize this means we're going to end up sending, like, you know, two masks to the same, too many masks to the same address. Other people aren't going to get it. Amazon could do this quickly, I believe. You know, lots of other places. As I, the old joke is, you know, Chick-fil-A was running the vaccine process. Uh, everyone would, the lines would be long, but they'd be moving very quickly. Service would be terrific and with a smile. And Greg, by now, I probably would have had three of them. Yeah, this is dumb and it's nanny statism. So uh, it's not going to accomplish anything. So let's hope it doesn't actually happen. But uh, well, since when has a uh, bad idea ever stopped Joe Biden? Uh, Jim, have a good day. See you tomorrow. <laughs> See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget about our friends over at ExpressVPN. Get those three months free, expressvpn.com slash martini. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. We're extremely grateful for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast, and it will play. Find us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. And please join us on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Hi, it's Dana Lash, host of The Dana Show. Every day, I'm here to keep you up to speed on the most important stories and info that you need to know in your very busy life. And if you're always on the go and you want to stay connected, just download our daily podcast and take it with you. It's a great way to get up to speed on what you need to know and what legacy media may not be telling you. Visit danaradio.com and click on the podcast link or subscribe at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.